Our Father, we draw near to you tonight in Jesus' name to praise you and love you and worship you and adore you. To revel in the grace that is ours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we can celebrate with those who have uniquely experienced your blessing. And in particular, we rejoice with Luke tonight. And with Norman Elaine. We rejoice, O oh Lord and God, that after the great investment of money, the great investment of time and study and diligence and labor, Luke has passed this bar exam. And we thank you for that. And we now all, Lord, prayerfully wonder where it is you are going to take him, where it is you're going to provide work for him. And selfishly, Father, we would love to see Luke right here as a part of our congregation engaged in the ministry here along with us. You may have other plans, Father. We are glad to yield to them. But we do thank you and praise you for hearing our prayers and granting this great, great blessing. We happily rejoice with him tonight. We pray this evening for our brother Lee, who will be preaching at the Chinese Evangelical Church, and ask that you would give him great strength and boldness as he prepares to declare the gospel there on the Lord's Day. Use him in a wonderful way. Thank you for the opportunities for influence that you have granted to our brother. In light of that, Father, we think tonight in particular of TJ and Cortland, who now are on the road for a week in Southern California and Arizona. We pray that you would give them strength. We remember, Father, that the Lord Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, if for no other reason than to provide strength for each other and encouragement. When one felt weary, the other could encourage. When one felt depressed, the other could encourage. And we pray that for T.J. and Corlin, that's exactly what would take place. Thank you for their respective gifts. Thank you for these opportunities for ministry. May they know the empowerment of your spirit and may the gospel be declared through the wonderful gifts that you have given to them. Father, we pray this evening for our brother Julius. Um, it seems as though he's only been here a few weeks and already he's had to turn around and go home, perhaps more quickly than he anticipated. We pray that you would sustain him and give him wisdom for the challenges that he will face there. On the one hand, happy to see his wife and children again. On the other hand, having immediately to step into that pastoral role. Provide leadership for this funeral. We pray that you would empower him to declare the gospel there. We are thankful that his mother-in-law knew you and loved you and even now is experiencing eternal bliss in your presence. We ask that you would allow Julius to arrive there safely, that you would bring him home safely, and for all the various challenges he will face, not the least of which are the needs of his own children, we pray that you would grant him grace, bring him back to us quickly. We anticipate the joy of fellowship and mutual ministry with him. We rejoice, Father, with what you've done at Bethany Baptist Church and Jeff Welch and that we could celebrate with them on October uh, 28th. We, we pray that that would be an evening where you would be glorified and honored and that we could show our enthusiastic support for Jeff and Carrie and their ministry there. Father, we now turn our attention to your word. 
And what a glorious privilege you bestow on fallen human beings. That you give them the opportunity, by virtue of the sovereign gifting of your Holy Spirit, to declare your word publicly. And Father, I confess tonight, I'm just filled with great enthusiasm, with great joy, eager at the opportunity. And Father, I pray that this would not be an exercise in self-indulgence. Rather, O God, that your people tonight, these gathered brothers and sisters, would leave encouraged and strengthened, having been influenced by the truth of the Word of God, having their own faith strengthened and matured and nourished, Please, Father, come and talk to us tonight. Please come and have your way with us. And Father, if by your grace we come to an understanding of the truth, may we never, ever, ever regard it as an opportunity for arrogance, but always for a greater recognition of our smallness before you and your kindness teaching us. And therefore may it breed humility. And perhaps a greater, more real understanding of how little we do know. Come talk to us. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you be so kind as to open your Bibles to John 17. John 17, Martin Luther called John 17 the Holy of Holies in all of the Bible. The great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suspect that in the next couple of weeks we're going to be coming back to this. We will have five parts to this series officially. And then on the sixth Wednesday night, I don't know the exact date. It may even be in your bulletin. That night we'll have an open Q&A time. We would really appreciate getting your questions ahead of time so that we could give some Uh, careful consideration to them and answer them as concisely and effectively as is possible. So be compiling your questions, sending them to us, because on that Wednesday night it'd be fun just to have a free-for-all and see what it is that uh, the Scriptures tell us regarding these matters. He has been regarded as greater than Henry Varden, Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Arnold Palmer, and even Tiger Woods. In his legendary career, he won a record 18 major tournaments and had a total of 115 professional wins. Nearly every sports writer on the planet has listed him as the greatest golfer in the history of the game, the Golden Bear, Jack Nicklaus. So what do you teach a man who is already the world's greatest golfer? You say nothing. But that's not how he regarded it. Every year in his professional career, Jack Nicholas would return to his teacher, Jack Grout, place a golf club in his hands and say, teach me how to play golf. And in turn, Grout would treat him as though he were a mere novice golfer, starting with the most basic fundamentals. This is how you hold a club. This is how you place the ball. This is how you address the ball. This is your alignment. This is the way you swing. Nicholas explains it in his book, Golf My Way. Apart from reinstilling their importance in my mind, 
This often has the effect of ironing out some of the bad habits I may have slipped into the previous year. It was his annual ritual, you see, but one that he took with great seriousness. Take me back to the basics. Take me back to the elementary things. Take me back to the fundamentals. Show me the rudimentary principles apart from which any advancement is compromised. Well, you see, my dear friends, it is exactly what these five or six Wednesday nights are all about. That we are returning to our teacher, as it were, placing the Bible in his hands and saying to him, O Spirit of God, teach me how to think like a Christian. Teach me once again the basic things, the elementary things, the rudimentary things, the fundamentals. I have not mastered them. Quite to the contrary, it is my great need to be mastered by them. It's exactly what we are doing in this very short series, So Great a Salvation. I am setting in front of you, dear friends, some of the most basic Christian truths, apart from which the most well-intentioned Christian will remain stunted in spiritual adolescence. And so I began last week by reminding you of the human dilemma that even makes salvation necessary. A pervasive depravity that not only extends throughout the entirety of the human race, but also into every nook and cranny of your humanity, leaving you unable, not merely unwilling, unable to respond to God in any kind of positive fashion. Now, for this evening, I would like to continue to help you think more Christianly by engaging with this question. If all of us really and truly are guilty in sin, and thus spiritually dead, unable to respond to God in any kind of positive fashion, how then is anyone saved? How are you saved? Given the fact that you lack the natural and inherent capacity to respond to God in repentance and faith, you were spiritually dead. You say, well, I guess God chose me? Yes, but all by itself, it doesn't say enough. You say, what do you mean? Do you believe in the testimony of the word of God? That not all people will be saved. Do you believe that the word of God says that? You'd be hard-pressed not to, friends. You say, well, yes, absolutely, I do believe that. That's very good because it is highly unlikely that a person can be a Christian and at the same time a universalist. What's more, if you truly believe the testimony of the word of God, you can't help but notice the frequency with which certain words appear again and again and again. For example, in the Old Testament, the word bahar, which translated means to choose, to elect, to decide, used nearly a hundred times times with explicit reference to God's sovereign choice, God's initiative used to express a choosing that has ultimate and eternal significance. And then you come to the New Testament and you come across the word eklego and its related terms used nearly 50 times translated to elect, to choose, the election, the elect. What are you going to do with these words? You can't deny the obvious language of the Bible, not if you're an honest reader of the scriptures. 
So you come to recognize that at the end of the day, the question is not, does God choose some and not others? But rather, on what basis does God choose some and not others? If you believe the Bible, you believe that not everybody will be saved. If you believe the Bible, you see that God chooses. So the issue is not, does God choose some and not others? The issue is, on what basis does God choose some and not others? In 1611, building on what I told you last week, the followers of James Arminius set forth a new and novel answer. God has chosen certain individuals to be saved on the basis of his foreknowledge of what they will do by their own powers of self-determination. That is to say, God's choice of a particular person is conditioned upon that person's prior choice of him. Because after all, God is a gentleman, would never violate anybody's will. You then are the captain of your own ship. You are the master of your own destiny. So that God looks into the future and he sees that I will believe the gospel. Why? Because I'm just so inherently intelligent to identify what the gospel is, recognize my need. And in response to this foreknown decision, God then says, that's great, Art. Because of your wisdom choosing to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, I now have a basis upon which to choose you to be saved. Does this teaching reflect the instruction of the Word of God? Because, beloved, we never ever begin by asking the question, how does this settle with my own sensibilities? We don't begin by saying, how does this resonate with the way I think? With what I think is fair. By the way, given what we said last week, you don't want fair from God, do you? Right? You don't want fair. You better want mercy and grace. You get fair, you're toast. We don't ever begin by asking the question, how does this settle with my human sensibilities? Rather, we begin by saying, does this teaching reflect the word of God? Because at the end of the day, I do not want the authority of experience. I want the experience of authority. You understand the difference, friends? I do not want the authority of experience. This is how it feels to me. This is how it seems to me. I want the experience of authority. This is what the Word of God says. And so the state of the question is itself very important. It is not, does God choose some sinners to be saved, but rather, is God's choice conditioned upon the foreseen faith of the sinner? To state it even more simply, and this is the question we are going to come back to now for the rest of the evening. On what basis does God choose people for salvation? On what basis does God choose people for salvation? Is it something in you, a virtue of some sort, some little piece of Goodness. An expression of faith, perhaps, that at the end of the day proves to be meritorious? Or is this choice of God determined by nothing other than his own good pleasure and holy purpose? I'd like to answer that question tonight 
But to do so, as I've thought about so many different ways that we could come at this thing, I would like to do so by using the very book of the Bible many assert to establish the free will of humanity more than any other book. The Gospel of John. Now, of course, as we discovered last week, the free will of humanity is a myth, isn't it? You have a will, just like you have a body, just like you have a mind, just like you have a conscience, just like you have a heart, but that will is stained. It is enslaved to sin, leaving you unable to respond to God in any kind of positive fashion. So when you hear people talk about the free will of humanity, there is no such monster. There is human responsibility. You have a will, you make a choice, but you always choice according to your nature. If I put a bag of oats and a T-bone steak in front of a horse, that horse has a choice, and that horse is going to make a choice, but it will always choose according to its nature. Therefore, it will always choose what? The oats. It makes a choice. But that choice is bound to its nature. And so we're going to look at the Gospel of John, which ironically speaks of God's sovereign choosing of sinners more emphatically than nearly any other Bible book. In fact, to be even more precise, the issue of sovereign choosing is not John's axe to grind. The clearest statements regarding God's sovereign choice come directly from the lips of Jesus himself. And you don't have a problem with Jesus, do you? As we come to John 17, the public ministry of the Son of God has now come to a close. He and his disciples have left the upper room at the end of John 14, and they are making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But before Jesus crosses the Kidron Brook and enters into the garden, John tells us that Jesus stops to pray. He's been teaching them as they've been walking from the upper room to the garden. Notice verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words... John 15, John 16. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The specific role of Jesus Christ in the saving purpose of God has now arrived at its predetermined moment. All through his ministry, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, that hour is here. So Jesus stops to pray. And for all of its magnificence, this glorious prayer in John 17, at the very heart of it is one all-consuming burden, a request in two parts, an immediate part and an ultimate part. Here's the immediate part of this request. Look at it. Father, the hour has come. Now's the time. Glorify your Son. That's the immediate part. Glorify your Son. Glorify your son. For what reason? Here's the ultimate part of this request. So that the son may glorify you. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, glorify your son? He's saying, put my glory on display. Advertise my glory. Show my glory. Expose my glory. Reveal my glory. But what does Jesus mean by this? Whatever it means, it bears a direct relationship to this hour that has now come, the hour of his death. Can you think of how the Father glorifies Jesus Christ in relationship to his sacrificial death? He raises his son from the dead. 
puts him on display for hundreds of witnesses to see, takes him into heaven and seats him at the place of supreme dignity in all of the universe, from which he then pours forth the purchase gift of the new covenant, the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, in chapter 7, John tells us, Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, um, I will be able to put inside of you rivers of living water. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorify me, reveal my glory by raising me from the dead as proof that you have accepted the merits of my redeeming work. But is this request of Jesus a selfish one? Not hardly. The answer to it, look, is a means to a far greater objective. The ultimate concern of Jesus. Glorify your Son, now watch the purpose clause, so that the Son may glorify you. But how will the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead be a means of glorifying the Father? Because as a consequence of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ in turn would grant God's gift of eternal life to a particular group of people. Look at it now, friends. Look at it. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. In eternity past, the triune Godhead designed the plan of salvation. God the Father gave to God the Son authority over all people, all flesh. This exousia, this authority means the full right to control. It means absolute authority. But why has Jesus Christ been given authority over all people? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now friends, this is not difficult to understand, but look at it closely. Put your eyes on the text. Two gifts from the Father are given to the Son. And they are both mentioned in this verse. Did you notice? What's the first gift the Father gives? Since you have given Him authority. That's the first gift. Authority. Authority over whom? Authority over all flesh. In other words, to be precise at this point, Jesus Christ has not been given all flesh. He has been given authority over all flesh. But then a second gift from the Father to the Son is mentioned. To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. What's this gift? A group of people. A subset from the all flesh mentioned in the prior phrase. They are referred to as all those you have given him. All whom you have given him. So we have these two groups, you understand? All flesh, those whom you have given him. All flesh, those whom you have given him. Now let me ask you, what is the distinct relationship of Jesus Christ to these two groups? The group defined as all flesh, the group defined as those whom the Father has given him. 
What is, the res- what is the relationship of the resurrected Christ to all flesh? Over them he has been granted what? Authority. Right? It's what he says in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is the relationship of the resurrected Christ to the group defined as those whom the Father has given him? Look at it. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In other words, friends, the logical structure of this thing is as plain as a pike staff. God has granted authority to Jesus Christ over all flesh so that in turn Jesus could grant eternal life to all those the Father had given him to save. There is an authority that is universal in order to effect a salvation that is particular. A group of people the Father has given the Son to save. And notice now this phrase repeats itself over and over in this prayer. Notice verse 6. Jesus speaking to his father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Notice there is the world. These are people you have given me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Hmm. Verse 9. Speaking of his high priestly ministry, making prayerful intercession. I am praying for them. Hmm, I wonder who he has in mind. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. Why? For they are yours. I don't pray for all people. If I pray for all people, everybody will be saved. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, who? Whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now, friends, have you pulled all of this together? In verse 2, Jesus says that there is a smaller group taken out of a larger group to whom he gives the gift of eternal life. In verse 6, Jesus says there is a smaller group taken out of a larger group to whom he reveals the Father. In verse 9, Jesus says there is a smaller group taken out of a larger group for whom he exercises his priestly ministry. Verse 24, Jesus refers to this same smaller group taken out of a larger group for whom he secures entrance into heaven. I want them to be where I am. Simple reading of the text. Who are these people, this smaller group? In every case, it is exactly the same. Those whom the Father has given to the Son. Now let me ask you, is this conditioned upon the foreknowledge of their faith? You don't see it in the text here. It's very much like the opening to the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, now, my dear friends, I want to tell you, that is really a pretty basic passage. Anybody who has any kind of teaching skills can outline this, this particular text. The source of our election, he chose us, that is the Father. 
The sphere of our election, he chose us in him, that is, in Christ Jesus. The time of our election, before the foundation of the world. The intention of this election, that we should be holy and blameless. The basis for this election, according to the purpose of his will, that is, not within anything to do with us. And the ultimate, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate consequence of this election, to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, there are people walking around saying, well, I know the Bible teaches this, but we really don't want to talk a whole lot about it. Not Paul. He says it's a basis for praise. It's a basis for worship. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the longest sentence in the entire New Testament, you'll discover that he talks about the electing work of God the Father, the redeeming work of God the Son, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, all of which is concluded by the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Who makes this choice according to his own good pleasure. It is an election conditioned upon nothing but the pleasures of God. Here in John 17, the father gives to his son authority over all flesh. For any reason in particular. So that Jesus might give eternal life to a group of people given to him by his father. In other words, friends, what we have here is an intertrinitarian transaction. Our faith at this point isn't a factor at all. Now turn with me to chapter 5. Turn with me to chapter 5. Jesus has healed a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And this sets off the Pharisees who are jealous for their power, their position, their influence. Moreover, Jesus performed this miracle on a Sabbath. So they want to they take Jesus out. In fact, we read that this intensifies their desire to kill Jesus. Well, we pick up the story in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For, watch now, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In the mind of a Jewish person, one of the activities that define God as God is his ability to raise corpses from the dead. And Jesus now uses this to draw a tight connection from the Father to himself so as to establish his own deity. Just as corpses depend upon God's life-giving voice to resurrect them from the dead, so too the recipients of eternal life are altogether dependent upon the sovereign pleasure of the Son so also the Son gives life to whom He will. It's very much like a passage in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus is going through all the Galilean cities preaching the gospel and nobody's responding. And Jesus says, I thank you, Father. I praise you. Some of the translations render it. Lord of heaven and earth, statement about God's sovereignty, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
Again, people often say, the Bible may teach the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing, but you really ought not to talk about it. According to Jesus, it's a basis for praise. And what does he praise God for? What expression of his sovereign purpose? Not only his revealing, but his concealing. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He gives praise to God in response for those God saves and for those he chooses not to save. Don't you want to think God's thoughts after him? In the next verse, all things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father. Now listen, and no one knows the Son except the Father... And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, is this choosing conditioned upon foreknowledge? How could it be? You can't know the Father unless the Son is pleased to reveal Him. Look at chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus has fed 5,000 people plus Women, 5,000 men, plus men, plus children, maybe as many as 15,000 people, 20,000 people, some scholars would estimate. And on the next day, of course, people say, oh, Jesus, we really want you to be our Messiah. Well, they don't want him to be their Messiah. They want him to be their bread provider. And so they all show up looking for food, and and Jesus basically preaches a sermon. But notice in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a beautiful verse. I read it backwards. What does Jesus say? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out anybody who comes to me. You come to Jesus Christ. You come right now. I will never cast out anybody who comes to me. Who will Jesus never drive away? Those who come to him. But who comes to him? Look at it. Look at the text. Who comes to him? A coming for salvation? All that the Father has given him. It's just like the language of John 17. My friends, this really isn't astrophysics, you see. Which comes first? People coming to faith in Christ or people being given to Christ by the Father? People come to Christ because they have been given to Jesus by the Father. Hence, God's sovereign choosing cannot be conditioned upon foreseen faith. Notice chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come. Remember, we looked at this language last week. It doesn't say no one may come. No one will come. No one can come. It speaks of inherent ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see the necessary precondition there? Draw a circle around that word unless, unless, unless. That's a necessary precondition. Something must happen to a person before he possesses the inherent ability to come to Christ for salvation. The Father must draw him. And if he is not drawn, he cannot come in faith. This eliminates, you see, the possibility of faith being a precondition of election. The initiative is God's. Look at verse 65. Uh, this is an amazing paragraph here, friends, because uh, these 15,000, 20,000 people who've said, Hey, we want Jesus, man. We want Jesus. He meets our needs. This is what seeker churches promises all the time. 
And when they figure out that they can't get the Jesus they want, he preaches one simple message of commitment. One message of commitment. They all leave. (laughs) They all leave. Now, theologically, he explains it. Verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, my friends, looking at these verses, it is very clear that no one ever receives eternal life unless they come to Jesus Christ. If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, with every ounce of enthusiasm inside of me, let me say to you, come to Jesus Christ. Come. Come to him right now that you might receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. He will not turn you away if you come. No one is ever saved who does not come to Jesus Christ. It's why, admittedly, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that early 20th century label, unconditional election, the you and the tulip acrostic, because it can be misleading if it suggests that God's election to salvation does not involve a genuine human response. You must come. You must come. Please understand, friends, this doesn't cut the nerve of evangelism. This puts steel in evangelism. It means that when I go out, I don't go out crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. Who can I manage to persuade to believe? I go out knowing God has a group of people he's determined to save, and I'm just the appointed means to accomplish that. Now, I don't know who they are, and it's not my business to know. I don't spend one minute wondering, who's the elect? I've not got a clue. It's not my business. You see, friends, in many ways, it's like the plumbing in my house. You come to my house and you don't see the plumbing. But the house won't work unless the plumbing is there. You see? And we always need to understand that the doctrines of grace are not the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message that is always front and center. What makes the gospel work are the doctrines of grace. God's sovereign choosing does not undermine human responsibility. What it tells you is that when someone does come to Christ, it's not happened by accident. It's not happened by coincidence. It's not happened because the music was really good that night or because the pastor really had powerful stories. Those people come by divine intention. In this case here, over and over, it is God's enablement that triggers the human decision to come to Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 13, when Gentiles are converted, Luke says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. You know what we want to do? We want to invert that order and say, oh, Luke, you misspoke. You misspoke. No. What you mean to say is, "Hmm." when they believed, they were appointed to eternal life. When they believed, God wrote their name in his book. All who believed were appointed to eternal life. That's not what the text says. The text says, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. In Acts 16, when Luke, when Lydia is converted, Luke says, The Lord opened her heart 
to respond to Paul's message. She responded to Paul's message. Nobody's ever saved who doesn't respond to the message of the gospel. But why? The Lord opened her heart. Here, faith is not the precondition to the divine initiative. The divine initiative is the precondition to faith. Look at chapter 8 of John's gospel. The ongoing frustration with the Jewish leadership continues. They resent and hate Jesus. Jesus says to them in verse 45, Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe me? I'll tell you why. Verse 47. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Again, there are people here who love to imply that the logic of Jesus is altogether backwards. Jesus should have said, the reason you do not belong to God is that you do not hear and believe. Instead, he says, you don't hear and believe because you don't belong to God. In other words, the human response is the consequence of God's elective grace, not that God's elective grace is the consequence of the human response. Over and over and over and over again. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, a passage that we may come back to next week. Jesus, the good shepherd, who gives his life for, not goats, the sheep. Hmm. Notice verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you. I've been telling you I'm the Messiah and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I've told you with my words. I've displayed that I'm the Messiah in my miraculous powers. Watch now. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice that Jesus does not say, you do not belong to me because you do not believe. It's the other way around. The reason you don't believe is that you don't belong to me. Faith is not the cause of election. Election is the cause of faith. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, watch now, who has given them to me? is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's John 17 again. There is a group of people who belong to Jesus Christ. How have they come to belong to Jesus Christ? They have been given to Jesus Christ by the Father. So how do we distinguish who these people are? They evidence their election by believing in Jesus Christ. So that faith is not the cause of election, it is the evidence of election. May I quote J.I. Packer, who states it so very simply. Before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, that's why we began with depravity last week, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained, not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. 
God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and matter for endless praise that he should choose to save any of us, and doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as sin bear for the elect. On what basis does God choose people for salvation? Friends, the text over and over and over and over and over again is consistent with itself. Certainly not their faith. And this is a thread, you see, that runs through the entirety of the Bible. We open up to the very book of Genesis, and we see that God chooses a man by the name of Abraham. Why Abraham? Because he's such a good guy. Because God foresaw that Abraham would come to believe in him. Abraham and his family were idol worshippers, Joshua 24 tells us. No, the text says God chose Abraham. But as the Bible unfolds further, we come to discover that the call of Abraham is not merely the call of an individual, but the sovereign call of a nation through which God would bring salvation to all the people groups of the world. And so over and over again, particularly in the book of Isaiah, Israel is referred to as the chosen of God. And why did God choose Israel? I mean, did all the nations have a competition and Israel won? Israel was best. Israel was strongest. Israel was most holy. Israel was most righteous. Israel was most devout. Did she win God's favor over against all the other nations of the earth? Because God anticipated that Israel would exercise faith in him? Moses says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring. Didn't have anything to do with Israel. It had everything to do with God's own holy heart. It's God saying in Deuteronomy 7, I loved you because I loved you. You weren't bigger. You weren't stronger. You weren't more righteous. I loved you just because I loved you. It's God's own holy purpose, you see. So what we come to discover is that in the Old Testament, Israel becomes God's chosen son, Exodus 4, and God's chosen servant, Isaiah 44. But as the story unfolds, what do we discover? Israel fails. Over and over and over again. Though the elect nation, not everybody inside the nation, genuinely belongs to the people of God. Not everybody in the church altogether belongs to God. Apostasy takes place. Judgment comes. The nation is taken into captivity with only a remnant belonging to God. Finally, in his mercy, God brings the exiles home. But as the New Testament opens, we're very mindful of the fact that the promises of salvation to Israel have not yet been fulfilled. And yet the light dawns. Good news is heralded. Why? There is a man God has chosen. The chosen one, 1 Peter calls him, as his Messiah. The true son of Abraham and David. And he is set forth as both God's son and God's servant. He, Jesus Christ, is the true Israel, succeeding where the nation had failed. And when his ministry begins, how many does he choose? Twelve. Hmm thereby reconstituting the nation of Israel. Consequently, the people who belong to Jesus Christ are now referred to by designations that clearly mark them out as the fulfillment of the people of God. We saw this two Sundays ago. They are the saints. They are the beloved ones. They are the children of Abraham. They are the true circumcision. They are the Israel of God. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest to serve as God and Father, all 
Bibles spoken of Israel now applied to the church. But perhaps most definitive of all, again and again and again, the New Testament scriptures refer to the church by that one label that was repeatedly assigned to Israel. They are the chosen ones. It's everywhere. And my dear friends, once you bow your knee to it and your eyes are opened and your heart is not predisposed against it, you start seeing it on every page. And maybe the most wonderful text of all, Romans 8. Why don't you turn there with me? Romans 8. You know the passage, huh? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Why don't we start there? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. You say, well, Art, come on, can't you see it there? God's foreknowledge, it's right there. Friends, did, did I mislead you? I readily and happily acknowledge God's foreknowledge. I readily acknowledge that God knows all of things ahead of time. But my friends, you do need to understand that the reason why God knows all things ahead of time is because he has ordained all things ahead of time. One can only foreknow what one is predetermined. But quite apart from that, let's not argue it logically. Let's look at the text. Look at the text, okay? Look at the text. For those whom he foreknew. Does it say God foreknew the faith that people would exercise in his son? That's not what the text says. This says nothing about what God foreknew. It only speaks about whom God foreknew. You say, well, God foreknows all people. Yeah, but in addition to foreknowing, God predestines. Verse 30, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. Whoever is foreknown by God in this verse gets the whole shooting match. All of salvation. This says God knows a group of people. And whoever these people are, God predestines them, calls them, justifies them, glorifies them. God does everything for them. By the way, what does this word to foreknow mean? Very often in the scriptures, the word know means so much more than cognition. Adam knew his wife. And what does the next line say? She conceived and bore a son. It's not talking about the fact that Adam knows her name. It's not talking about mere cognition. It's talking about intimacy. The intimacy of relationships. Intimate knowledge. God says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now friends, of course God has intellectual awareness of all the nations on the earth. The Japanese and the Spanish. And That's what God is saying. He's saying something different. He is saying of all the nations on the earth, I've entered into intimate relations with you. 
It's Jesus saying on the day of judgment, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never, what? Knew you. He's not saying, I didn't know your name. I didn't know your address. I didn't know how many hairs were on your head. I didn't know your email contact information. He's saying we had no relationship of intimacy. And that's the idea behind this word here, which is why many rightly interpret this foreknowing to mean to love before time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he loved before time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. No seepage. One guarantees all the rest. On what basis does God choose people for salvation? Is it owing to anything in them? Romans 9, next chapter. Paul begins to talk about God's promises to Abraham. That Abraham and Sarah would have a child through which the promise would come. Notice verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, Abraham and Sarah had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. So we're following the line of promise. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. By the way. Rebecca was pregnant with twins, remember? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What does mercy and compassion imply? Guilt. Inherited guilt. Jacob and Esau both are guilty. God doesn't act in injustice by bypassing Esau. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has... Mercy. On what basis does God choose people for salvation? Is it owing to anything in them? No, my friends, it is owing to everything in Him. So that everything tonight can be summarized by this little statement that you find in the Bible over and over and over in both Testaments. Salvation is of the Lord. Now you know what that means. He does all of it. Now, beloved, I understand that the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing is one that carries with it the baggage of controversy. And for that reason alone, there are many Christians who think it to be the better part of wisdom to avoid it altogether. But let me ask you, is there any significant 
biblical teaching that has remained untainted by controversy? Whether we are talking about the triune nature of the Godhead, the deity of Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the content of the canonical scriptures. As Christians, we have never, ever, ever had the luxury of living in a world where the most nourishing of biblical truths have existed without opposition. That's the reason Satan goes after them. Because he knows how valuable they are. So do we let the devil determine our agenda for us by saying, I'm just not going to bother with anything controversial? You need to know this, friends, because when someone expresses a sentiment such as the following, I don't like to talk about a particular doctrine because it's controversial, we are not confronted at that point with an expression of great piety or godliness with all due respect. Rather, in most cases, a display of biblical laziness, and certainly in all cases, a display of immaturity and ignorance. If your commitment is to feed your soul only on those spiritual truths that have been or are presently non-controversial, then you will find yourself staring at an empty plate. I remember, I remember the banner of promise keepers. We don't do doctrine. We don't do theology. We don't do doctrine. We don't do theology. And consequently, they get T.D. Jakes to come and speak, who is a modalist. He doesn't even believe in the Trinity. No doctrine always leads to bad doctrine, friends. You need to understand that. Now, I readily acknowledge that controversy is associated with the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing, friends. And I also acknowledge that it is very much possible for a person to be a genuine Christian and not understand this. Thanks be to God, John Calvin will not be at heaven's gate determining your fitness for entrance into that place. And yet, directly on the heels of that concession, let me say this, that the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing is one of the most foundational truths in all of sacred scripture. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. And for this reason alone, you can be absolutely certain of one thing, as is the case with every other significant truth from the word of God, to either ignore the doctrine or disagree with it is to inevitably impede the ongoing maturity of your spiritual life. You will be stunted in spiritual babyhood. To disagree with God's sovereignty is not the mark of a sanctified mind. It is never wise to assume that there is no cost associated with the neglect of the truth of the word of God. Whether that neglect is inadvertent or intentional, there is a price to be paid when we distance ourselves from God's truth. And this is the very thing that has fueled my passion to make these rudimentary doctrines of our great salvation clear to you. You should be saying to me, like Jack Nicholas, I may have slipped into some bad habits this past year. Take me back to the elementary things. Take me back to the basics. Take me back to the very rudiments and teach me how to think Christianly about my salvation. On what basis does God choose people for salvation? Is it owing to anything within them? It is owing exclusively to him. His holy, righteous, just, loving, good purpose. 
You say, but Art, this is the very thing I just can't get my head around. I realize the Bible teaches it. But then when I think about myself, I think, I can't begin to understand why God would choose me. I'm not worth saving. And you know what? You are not worth saving. You aren't. There's only one thing I'm more convinced about. I'm not worth saving. There's only one person I know worse than you. And that's me. My sins are so great. But here is the amazing thing. It seems that these are the kinds of people that God most often delights to choose. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's owing all in every way to him. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, We want so much to let your word speak. And every one of us, every one of us here in this room runs the risk of reading our own agenda into your word. And by your grace, what we want to do is say, I'm going to set aside all my presuppositions as best I can. I'm going to set aside those things that seem right to me and allow my mind to be influenced and shaped by the truth of the divine word. And Father, that's what we want. We want you to teach us how to think like Christians, particularly these days as it relates to our salvation. So, God, we pray that you would help us to begin to understand these things, to yield to them, to embrace them, and to praise you for them as Paul does, as Jesus does. 
realizing, O Lord and God, that we can never fully understand what it is you're doing. And that when things seem odd to us, we have to acknowledge always that you are always good, righteous, just, and holy. Even if it doesn't seem that way to our own sensibilities. When we recognize that we are dead in sin, guilty, the amazing thing is not that you choose some and not all. The amazing thing is that you choose any. And so we praise you tonight. And Father, in the event that there is one single person this evening who says, I want Christ, I want Christ, I want Christ. May they know even now the issue that they need to debate is not whether or not they're elect. May they realize that the reason they even want Christ is because you are drawing them. And so may they know right now they can have eternal life as they trust in Jesus. Thank you, Father. For the gospel and the plumbing that makes it work. 